Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that Toronto was founded on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit River, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. This meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people, and we are grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. As we explore refugee health in this episode, we ask all our listeners to reflect on their journey to this land, whether you were born here, immigrated here, or sought refuge on this land. We ask listeners to visit indigenouspeoplesatlasofcanada.ca and native-land.ca to learn more about and reflect upon the Indigenous peoples whose traditional territory they currently occupy and their own role in reconciliation. We would also like to acknowledge the long history of science and medicine as tools of oppression against Indigenous peoples and the barriers to healthcare that are still experienced by Indigenous peoples in Canada today. Before this experience, I was a completely different person with a completely different dream. This hard transitional stage, you are homesick and you are also thinking about remaining family members overseas, living under horrendous circumstances. I try my best to ease the impact of their resettlement process as refugees, as someone who didn't choose to come here, as someone who had to come here. Moving to Canada is not easy at all. My job is all about providing first language services to the newly arrived refugees. I am the person who welcomes them and I will help them with everything that they will need in their resettlement process. I want everyone to realize how tremendous, how beautiful it is to offer people a place to call home, which is something priceless that I really, really appreciate having right now. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees has reported that the number of forcibly displaced people continues to grow every year and is currently at a record high. At the end of 2020, 82.4 million people were forcibly displaced due to conflict, violence, persecution and infringement of human rights. Some displaced people seek refuge in countries all around the world, and in fact, since 1980, more than 1 million refugees have settled in Canada. Although each refugee's journey from displacement to resettlement is unique and complex, the challenges do not end once they land in their new home. Upon arrival, refugees need to learn to navigate their way through a new system, a new culture, and potentially a new language, and these challenges make accessing services in Canada, such as healthcare, daunting and difficult. In this episode, we explore the resources available to help refugees navigate the Canadian healthcare system as well as learn about the gaps that exist in our system and how we can advocate for refugees living in Canada. This is Atifa. And I'm Kayvon. Welcome to episode 99 of Raw Talk Podcast. Before we actually dive any deeper, could we just take a step back? Could you tell us who 
is a refugee? And how does it differ from migrants or asylum seekers? Sure. There's a number of different kind of, I guess, categories or statuses that refugees or newcomers may have when they first arrive. There are sponsored refugees who can be supported and and brought over by either the government or private sponsorship groups. These are refugees that have been identified and processed overseas. And so when they arrive in Canada, they already have been determined as refugees and are on a pathway to permanent residency. So there's a bit more stability there in their status when they arrive, because a lot of the processing and identification has taken place overseas. Refugee claimants, who are primarily the the group that I've worked with over the years, are individuals and families who get to Canada on their own, right? So they've, they've made it to Canada, they've fled whatever situations that they're fleeing, and they've arrived in Canada, and they're making a claim for refugee status. But because they've arrived on their own, they have to go through a process to determine if they are a refugee or a person in need of protection. And so they live with refugee claimant status while they prepare for and await their hearing at the Immigration and Refugee Board, where it will be determined if they are a convention refugee or a person in need of protection. In Canada, we would refer to asylum seekers as refugee claimants, right? So that would be the official term that we would use for someone who has arrived and is seeking asylum or, you know, in the official terms, making a refugee claim. And then the third group that I would mention, a group that we may describe as precarious migrants. So these will be people who have arrived in Toronto or in Canada, but they have not arrived as refugees and they are not proceeding with a refugee claim. So they may be looking for other pathways to status or to regularize their status uh, after they've arrived. So sometimes these may be individuals who are here on temporary status, whether as a visitor, a worker, or a student, or they could be people who have no status currently because whatever status they arrived with has expired. And and so they are actually living without any status at the moment. So those are the different groups and kind of some of the different scenarios that we will come into contact with when we are working with children and families at the centre. You just heard from Steve Maha, who is the manager of the Centre for Refugee Children. This is a new initiative that was launched at the start of 2021 to provide settlement and legal support to refugee and migrant children in Ontario. He spoke to us in more depth about this new initiative. Can you tell us more about the work at the Centre for Refugee Children and what it was that inspired you and motivated you to launch this project? So I think, you know, working with refugee claimant families and working with children over a number of years, we came to a recognition that while there were different services and supports available to refugee claimants and precarious migrants, there wasn't always accessible services that focused on the specific needs of the children involved. There, you know, for refugee and migrant children, whether they're unaccompanied and separated and here on their own, or whether they're going through immigration processes with family members, there needs to be an acknowledgement that they are moving through an immigration system that was designed for adults and not children. And so when that recognition takes place, you realize that there are a lot of specific barriers that impede access to justice for refugee and migrant children as they try to navigate the immigration system. On the other side of that, outside of immigration, I think a lot of systems that refugee and migrant children 
come into contact with after arriving in Toronto or in Ontario were not designed to respond to the specific settlement needs that these children have, right? Whether it's the child welfare system or the education system, there are a lot of barriers that these children face to access the services and supports that they need and that they ought to be entitled to. So from that, we decided to uh, develop and establish a center that's going to specifically support refugee and migrant children in their settlement needs. And of course, for those children who are here with their families, we're supporting the entire family as well as they move forward. Now let's hear from Dr. Prasida Jenakiram, who is a family doctor at the Crossroads Refugee Clinic at Women's College Hospital, as well as an assistant professor at the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. We asked her to broadly describe the journey of a refugee from leaving one's home country to arriving in a new country and claiming refugee status, as well as how that journey influences one's physical and mental health. Such an important question, and one that, to be honest, I think is best answered by first stating that I don't think we can ever necessarily be clear that one journey will be the same as another. And I, and I think that appreciating that is such an important part of the work we do. So I will say that there are likely a range of responses to this, but some of the common threads that we are aware of are the fact that almost every refugee who has left their country of origin has probably done so under duress and certainly not of their choosing. And I think that's so incredibly important for us to appreciate that every patient we meet has left people they care about, a home, they've left a profession or an employment or a life behind that has included a career and a sense of belonging to community. And all of those pieces were left in the context of needing to flee for fear of persecution for a range of reasons. And for many of the patients we meet, some have come through other countries. Some have had arduous journeys that have caused them to travel through and across many borders. Some have come directly to Canada. And many have an ongoing uncertainty about what lies ahead for them. And I will say that that is probably such a critical component of the courage and the resilience that so many of our patients share, their ability to face the uncertainty of what lies ahead and appreciating that while this is an opportunity in Canada to rebuild and to start again in many ways, that there is also a mourning and a loss for what has been left behind. Could you also tell us how is the mental health of refugees affected by the unique challenges they face? So many of our patients are some of the most courageous and brave and resilient individuals that we will ever meet. Many have experienced tremendous hardship, tremendous trauma, loss, and, and grief that can stem from so many sources. But I will also say that this is a, an individual population that has traversed many obstacles to arrive in Canada and in so doing, many of our patients have a very forward-looking mindset, one where 
Their interest is in ensuring that their safety, of course, is maintained, but also that there is an interest in in building new homes, new lives, supporting their families, be it here in Canada or the family left behind. And in so doing, so many of our patients are interested in ensuring that, that they move forward. That being said, depression and anxiety can be very, very much a part of the care that we address with many of our patients. And I will say that I think it, it probably comes as no surprise to anyone listening that that period of time around preparation for their refugee hearings and the period of time around which they wait with uncertainty for the results of those hearings can be a very stressful time. And this is a time when I think we see a lot of enhanced or or elevated levels of anxiety and duress for very good reason. I think that um, interestingly, many sort of peripheral um, groups might imagine that PTSD is is something that every patient experiences. And I think what we have learned over time is that typically speaking, PTSD is not necessarily a formal diagnosis made for the majority of patients that we see. In fact, it's a small percentage, maybe closer to about 20 to 25 percent of patients who have formal diagnosis of PTSD because in so many of our patients actually, I think, lean on the support of their their families, their community, um, the building of new relationships and friendships and a sense of belonging when they arrive in Toronto. And these are important connections that help many of our patients uh, move forward. I think the opportunities to gain employment, to develop language skills, and to participate in education and get their children established in communities as well are some of the key building blocks that help combat depression, anxiety, and other mental health concerns. How diverse is the population of refugees in Canada? And how diverse is the population of refugees that you treat at the clinic? I would say the diversity of refugees in Canada is quite broad. I will say that, you know, over the past several years, we know that global numbers around displaced people and in specific refugee migration have only been rising the last several years. We know that globally, major source countries of refugees include Syria and Afghanistan, but also a range of other countries, which can include countries in Africa and Middle East and also in South America. In the case of our particular practice, we have patients over the years who have come from source countries that have varied very much with the sociopolitical and geopolitical climate around the globe. So I will say that we see refugees from from Afghanistan and from Syria to some degree and Iraq, but we've also had patients from Nigeria and Uganda and Ethiopia and Eritrea and patients from Colombia and Venezuela and Mexico. We had certain waves of refugees at various points in the past, including a large percentage of Hungarian refugees at one time, and also from North Korea several years ago. So all to say that it shifts, and it shifts annually, but it's a privilege for us to the opportunity to meet these patients at this important time in their lives as they enter Canada and begin the process of resettlement. To dive further into refugee health particularities, we reached out to Dr. Meb Rashid, 
who is a family physician here in Toronto and the medical director of the Crossroads Clinic. We asked him to elaborate on what refugee health actually encompasses. You know, in the 20 years I've been dealing with refugee populations, more and more we're seeing, you know, the the diseases of excess, diabetes, obesity, hypertension. It really is becoming a global phenomenon. In many ways, the people we see are not so different than, than other immigrant groups or people who are Canadian-born. What does make healthcare different? Well, one, of course, are people's trajectories. When you're coming as a refugee, it means that you've endured persecution. And when you've endured persecution, there's often a mark that leaves. No, I shouldn't say often. There's always a mark that's left on you. Sometimes that mark is, is a, a gaping hole and sometimes it, it's less so. But that certainly has had an impact. The second thing is that many, because of their journey or sometimes because of where they come from, they have exposed themselves to different health risks. So for some refugees, they'll have a higher rates of certain infectious diseases, for example. So we see higher rates of tuberculosis and enteric parasites, uh, certainly hepatitis B, and there's a myriad of reasons for that. And then I, I think there's the more nuanced issues, right? Look, I think if you're working as a healthcare worker in any urban area in Canada, you better appreciate the impact of working cross-culturally, right, with people we not only come from a different culture, but a different country of origin, a different way of looking at the world. But we also see people sometimes who've never had access to primary care. There's been a number of examples of things we have diagnosed in adults that in some countries in the world would be diagnosed in newborns, right? And, you know, we're still seeing people present with congenital diseases as adults. Um, we're seeing people uh, with unrecognized illness. So, so I think, you know, it's those issues, the, the mental health challenges, certainly the different exposure risks, working cross-culturally, you know, the impact of people who sometimes have not had access to primary care. Post-arrival, there's a whole different set of issues. And I think this really speaks to what we can do to help ensure that people remain productive and they, they're able to build their lives again. And I'm sure you realize most of those issues are socioeconomic, right? So it's allowing people access to language services. It's allowing people access to the labor force. And that's the speaks to recognizing people's previous educational exposure. Sometimes it's about things like daycare. Most of our patients live in quite significant poverty and certainly how you know that affects people's health and their trajectories here is something that uh, is a big part of our practice. Crossroads Clinic at Women's College Hospital was established to specifically serve newly arrived refugees in Toronto. As the medical director, we asked Dr. Rashid to share the story of how this clinic came to be. Sure. And, and I have to maybe start by saying it wasn't something that I actively sought out. You know, it was really a, a set of coincidences that introduced me to the work. And as with many of my colleagues that do this work, once you start working with this population or once you encounter this population, it's, it's a very alluring group to work with. I had seen refugee clinics sprout up at many different cities across the country, but there wasn't really a clinic here in Toronto that exclusively served the needs of refugees. So I decided to pitch it and finally approached Women's College, and they were fantastic. They were very excited about the opportunity, and within about a year and a half, we were seeing our first patient. That was, uh, that was nearly 10 years ago. It'll be 10 years ago this December. We saw our first patient there, so it's been, um, it's been really quite, quite a wonderful time. I always say that people who have come through the refugee process have really you know, overcome some of the world's greatest obstacles. And more often than not, they arrive in Canada with a tremendous sense of excitement about being here. It's, a, it's really a testimony to human resiliency. So yeah, I, I, I say I have the best job in the city. Next, we asked Dr. Jenna Kiram to speak more about the unique healthcare needs of refugee women. We've already spoken about what healthcare services for refugees really entails, but I'd love to take that a step further and ask 
What healthcare services are unique to refugee women? What unique needs do they have? This is such an important question because I think in the context of refugee healthcare, there are some aspects that feel quite universal. We want to offer all of our patients health screening opportunities, opportunities for cancer screening, opportunities for vaccination, opportunities for chronic disease management and mental health support. But I will also say that so many of the refugee women whom we work with have additional or amplified challenges that we are aiming to address. I think for many of our patients who are pregnant or in the postpartum period, this is a really important milestone in, in their lives, be it their first pregnancy or whether they've had other pregnancies previously. I think the, the, the situation of being new to Canada and in a newcomer position here in Toronto in specific is a time that can be both stressful, sometimes exciting and hopeful as well, but also faced with a great deal of uncertainty. And so I think this is a time in many of our patients' lives where we have an opportunity to really bolster support. So that has been a, a key and very unique aspect of refugee women's health that we engage in. We've also been mindful of the fact that for many of our patients, they've possibly never had education or knowledge of cervical cancer screening in the past in their home countries. And so this becomes an important prevention that we want to introduce to many of our patients and, and to be mindful of the fact that this is a, a very personal and intimate exam and one that we want to be mindful of in how we introduce it, but also how we encourage women to engage in cancer screening as, an, as a proactive measure that helps them maintain their health. Similarly, we offer breast cancer screening and colon cancer screening with the same, same mindset. I will say that another aspect of women's health that we consider very fundamental is the opportunity to explore women's interest in pregnancy or unintended pregnancy prevention. And so certainly we address this early in our clinical visits with patients because we appreciate that for many refugee women, contraception and family planning or birth spacing, depending on sort of the terminology that um, might be most appropriate in their, in their own lives, is an important piece that has often been lacking in the many years that many women may have experienced migration. It may be something that they want to address in a confidential, but also in a manner in which their own personal preferences are maintained. So these are all aspects of specific refugee women's health needs. I will add an additional component around the mental health of our patients, which is to say that, you know, mental health priorities vary for everyone in our practice. But for many women in our practice, they are also very much involved in the support of their families and their caring of their children. And with that comes a caregiver stress and strain in addition to their own personal well-being. So I will say that, you know, we're very mindful of the fact that many of our patients as women are also primary caregivers in their homes and have such a breadth of responsibility that we're hopeful that we offer a space where, where some of these issues can be addressed. Considering the large number of refugees that Canada intakes every year, we asked Dr. Rashid about the approach the Crossroads Clinic takes to improve the accessibility of their services in addressing this ever-growing demand. 
A lot of our new patients come through refugee shelter system here in Toronto. So, you know, very early on, we realized, you know, when we had opened, there were about 10,000 refugees and refugee claimants coming through Toronto. And we realized we weren't going to be able to see them all, right, with the two of us. So we, did, we you know, instead of making it a very complicated process, we, we thought that those that were in the shelters would perhaps be the ones with highest needs, right? The people who probably didn't have support systems or family here. At the time we started, we had put in a clinic at... Uh, a small, well, I shouldn't say small, it's one of the larger refugee claimant shelters in Toronto at Christie and, and Bloor, the Christie Refugee Welcome Centre. So we already had that clinic in place. And our nurse practitioner took that the experience we, we'd had there and put in another clinic at an organization called Sojourn House, which is the largest refugee claimant shelter in Toronto. You know, we're in downtown Toronto. There's a lot of clinics. There's a lot of walk-in clinics. There's a number of uh, hospital emergency rooms in the area. But I think being able to be in the place where people live makes a tremendous difference. It made me realize that, you know, sometimes even going a block or two to a walk-in clinic can be an obstacle for people. Uh, sometimes that's language. For many of our patients, they don't have OHIP cards. I mean, they still are, are insured through a different program. But And so being really in people's homes, which is what those shelters are, is a tremendous opportunity to overcome some of the barriers that refugees face. I think our shelter clinics have been really helpful in terms of reaching out to people who arrive. The other thing I would say is that, remember previously when I mentioned there's a number of people we've seen who've never had primary care. So, you know, it's again a real reminder that if we can get people connected to primary care, not only does it help them for certain illnesses that they're suffering from, but it allows us the opportunity to diagnose illnesses before they become a problem. So things like undiagnosed hypertension or undiagnosed diabetes or some infectious diseases. Also, if we can get them connected, the advantage is when things go bad, if they go bad, then they're not searching around for a clinician at a time when they may be suffering and feeling vulnerable, right? So it's much easier for me to see my doctor if I have a relationship with him or her, you know, if I feel safe in that environment. So there's a lot of barriers. And then, you know, the other thing is competing priorities, right? We see families arrive here. I remember one family with, you know, six kids and you know, the, everyone feels fine. And it took them a long time to connect because they had to get the kids in school and buy winter coats and, you know, figure out how to open up a bank account, get a phone. And getting connected to primary care gets pushed down the list, even in those times when it's on the list. So competing priorities is also sometimes an issue. We heard a lot about the barriers refugees face when it comes to accessing and utilizing the health services available. So we asked Dr. Jenna Kiram to speak on possible ways to overcome those barriers. Especially because we're in family medicine, such an important part of our work is building a relationship with our patients over time, beginning to introduce some of the important preventative care that is such a, a key pillar of what we do in family medicine in Canada. And this can include education about the range of preventions that are available and that we like to carefully offer to our patients, which can include cervical cancer screening, breast cancer screening, colon cancer screening vaccinations for all ages, including children who might be wanting to attend schools and daycares in the area, and for parents and families, men and women, hoping to enter the workforce. I think we also are very mindful that another important element of the healthcare we offer is mental health support. And that mental health support can include a range of, of soft services, which include counseling and 
and sort of active listening, but it can also include active management of depression and anxiety, PTSD in some cases, certainly a range of situational stress management, and of course, the additional supports that include advocacy from a family medicine perspective including advocating for social supports in the community and addressing some important elements of social determinants of health. Some of the challenges refugees face when accessing healthcare services in Canada are influenced by non-medical factors such as socioeconomic status. These factors, known as social determinants of health, play a major role in overall well-being. So how do these factors affect refugees? Could you please broadly discuss how these social determinants present challenges and what is being done to remove some of these barriers? So I think when we talk about the social determinants of health and how that impacts health in general or or mental health and well-being, what we see is often, and you may talk to other, other doctors as well who have far more expertise specifically than I would, but what we see is that the social determinants of health and those impacts over time can lead to specific health issues that refugees and migrants didn't have when they arrived in Canada, but over time have developed because of the different challenges and barriers that they're facing, right? And so I think that it's so important when we talk about refugee health and we talk about access to healthcare and health systems, that we also focus on the social determinants of health, that we talk about housing, that we talk about food security, that we talk about access to education and access to employment, all of these different barriers, because those are issues that over time can end up surfacing in a healthcare setting, right, if they're not addressed. And Traditionally, they haven't been addressed, certainly when we talk about refugee claimants and migrants, because oftentimes they do not have access to those services and supports that they need to be able to move forward successfully with their settlement. On that note, can you briefly discuss the importance of housing on the physical and mental well-being of refugees and what some housing challenges are that refugees typically experience? Yeah, I can say that working with refugee claimants and migrants over the past 10 years in Toronto, it's been unbelievable to see housing move from something that we almost took for granted and saw as something outside of settlement and outside of, you know, the world that we worked in to becoming the core challenge for refugee and migrant children and families in Toronto and in other regions as well. It's been unbelievable to see the impact that the lack of access to safe and affordable housing has had on refugees and migrants in the last decade. When we work with families, this has happened many times, we will be sitting across from them and they will say, when I came to Canada, I knew that the immigration process was going to be a challenge. I knew that getting my children settled was going to be a challenge. I knew that recovering from our migration and our journey was going to be a challenge. What I didn't expect was that housing would be so hard, that that would be the thing that is holding us back. And that's what we've seen. Refugee families that we work with oftentimes are in emergency shelters for far longer than they need to be, not because of other challenges, but just because they cannot afford any housing that is available. For a lot of people in the healthcare sector, I think that they need to acknowledge that lack of access to safe and affordable housing for 
refugees and migrants is something that is impacting their health and that needs to be addressed much more strongly than it's been addressed in the past. Despite the many services available for refugees, unaddressed gaps remain. We discussed what is being done to address these unmet needs. Could you tell us about what gaps exist in the healthcare that's being provided to refugees and what is being done to fill in those gaps? I think the answers will be quite varied, but I think we probably all agree that sort of addressing key social determinants of health are such an important part of addressing the gaps in healthcare. We can't offer healthcare in a siloed manner. And I think we've become increasingly aware, and I think the COVID pandemic has highlighted this even more so, that where our patients live and and how accessible uh, opportunities to access groceries and to build community and to have a network of support are very impactful on people's health. I think we know that there are important and tools of resilience that come out of having language skills and developing job opportunities and being able to have affordable childcare that allows so many of our of our patients to then participate in in the rebuilding of their their lives for themselves and their families are important pieces of what maintain good health and i think all of those elements are gaps, but also areas where there is work being done, but more is always needed. And I would say that those are such key pieces. As Dr. Janakiram just mentioned, COVID has highlighted some of the gaps in our system and worsened the challenges refugees may face. Next, we talked to Steve to learn a bit more about some of the ways COVID has impacted the lives of refugees. So the pandemic, as it's been for many groups and populations, has been extremely difficult. On the one hand, what we saw was the immediate closure of borders and travel restrictions, which meant that refugee claimants and migrants who were fleeing, who needed somewhere safe to be, could no longer access that safety, right? And that's continued to this day. There's still travel restrictions, there's still border closures. And so a lot of children and families and individuals who might have sought protection in Canada have not been able to, right, for the last year and a half, two years. For those who were already in Canada when the pandemic happened, what we saw is a lot of the institutions and systems that they rely on to be able to move forward with their settlement kind of shut down and closed their doors, right? So everything, everything went on pause, whether that was immigration processes that could no longer move forward because everything was suspended, or whether that was just different services and supports that you would need during your first weeks and months in Canada weren't there, right? And so it was really challenging. You throw on top of that, that many of the emergency supports that might have been provided by various levels of government were not necessarily accessible to the children and families we worked with, like CERB or employment insurance and these different things. Depending on your immigration status, you didn't always have access to those things. And I think right now, we're kind of seeing the effects of the last year and a half, two years on on the community and on the families that we work with, just because it's been so difficult and the support has not been there that, that we would have hoped would have continued to be there, even in the midst of a pandemic. 
As mentioned earlier in this episode, the challenges refugees face don't end upon arrival in Canada. In fact, the process of resettlement can be long and overwhelming for all refugees, and it's important to provide long-term, ongoing support throughout. Steve elaborated on the importance of this continued support. When you're running, you don't really have time to digest everything that's happening. And so it's when you get that chance to take a breath and pause that it can be quite overwhelming, right? And so I think for refugee houses and refugee shelters, you know, across the province and across the country, it's really important to be able to support refugee claimants and refugees with a balance of giving them time to heal and digest everything that they've been through and giving them the information and tools they need to move forward because they also want to move forward and and build a new life for them in Canada. That being said, I think that settlement is a long process. And as certain challenges are addressed and resolved, new ones surface and need to be addressed. So I think it's a mistake to think when you're working with refugee claimants or refugees that We just need to give them support for one month or three months, and then they'll be fine and they'll move forward. As a shelter and as a shelter system as a whole, the goal is to move families or individuals from homelessness into housing. And so on paper, when a family moves out of a shelter into housing, that's a success, right? That's how the system would view it. We've moved a family into housing. We've supported them. When you actually work in the field and you support families, what you realize is that moving from homelessness into housing creates a lot of other challenges that then need to be supported and addressed. Um, It's not unusual for families to have to spend 75 or 80% of their total monthly income just to secure housing in Toronto or in the greater Toronto area. And so when families are walking out of a shelter door into housing, I don't think it's it's a time for service providers to pat themselves on the back. I think it's a time to say, how are we going to support these families with food insecurity, with deep levels of poverty that they're going to be facing, with social isolation that they might face because they're moving out on their own and they're, they're new to the environment and to the community. As we just learned, it's not enough to only fulfill the immediate needs of refugees. Rather, we need to continually support them throughout their journey. Here we explore the different levels of advocacy and how we can practice it within the healthcare setting. How can physicians be better advocates for refugees? I think one of the key pieces is the understanding that advocacy can happen in so many forms. And I'm a big believer in reiterating this because I think sometimes, especially for our trainees who we work with quite significantly at our clinic, we're mindful of the fact that trainees may arrive in our clinic appreciating that advocacy might look very much at the macro level, which might be policy level changes and system changes. But I also appreciate how important it is that we remind all of our our trainees, but also ourselves and our peers and colleagues that advocacy can also happen at the micro and meso level. And we have a number of colleagues who've really articulated this well over the years. The fact that the micro level can look at the fact that when we work with an individual patient and they have 
forms that need completion or letters that they need for attendance at school or letters for their refugee hearings or if they need us to make phone calls as physicians to help open doors for them in particular settings, whether that be particular clinics where access might be limited or advocating for language interpretation options to be made available. Those are all examples of micro-level advocacy and important in our day-to-day practices. I think we can also think about the meso-level, which is the appreciation of sort of community-level advocacy. And, and that works, again, in a range of different settings, whether that be a creating of new partnerships between clinics or community partners, whether it be supporting our community partners when there's a specific need that arises or, or develops around a particular issue. COVID, I think, highlighted many of those examples, or be at the macro level, which is, I think, the one most most tend to think of first, which is sort of those broader system and policy changes. I think when we talk about how complicated the healthcare system is and all of these different systems are in Canada, the role of community support becomes so important because to navigate these systems requires advocacy, right? And for anyone who's ever had to navigate healthcare referrals for themselves or their families, they'll tell you how complicated it is and how much follow-up is required and how many phone calls need to be made. So imagine trying to do that when English is not your first language. Imagine trying to do that when you are in limbo with your immigration status and are waiting for a year or two years for your refugee claim hearing, right? Imagine trying to do that when, like many of the families we work with, There are family members, whether they're children or siblings or parents back home, and you're separated over a long period of time, right? So I think that community support, whether it's in the the form of service providers and, and frontline organizations who can provide that settlement support, or community members, as you mentioned, who can support families as they navigate the day-to-day challenges of the healthcare system and of other systems, it's so critical, right? And I think that that's something that if children and families don't have that, oftentimes it means that they're not going to access the services and supports that they need. So it's a critical role that needs to be taken up for sure. As we just heard from Steve, community support is an important aspect of advocating for refugees. Next, we asked Dr. Rashid to share some of the community resources we have in Toronto to support refugees living here. So in our clinic at Crossroads, we finally, I guess it's been about three or four years, we were able to get a social worker, which of course was you know, huge for us, right? I, I can't imagine that we practiced so many years without having a social worker on site. We still don't have a dietitian, but uh, we'll rely on community resources in many ways. So there's, for example, diabetic educators in the community that we'll have access to that we have to use frequently. One of the real advantages of working with the refugee shelters is they have tremendous tremendously well-informed and committed workers there. So, you know, we don't have our own settlement worker, for example, but they've got a network of people they they have in place who've had uh, lots of experience working exclusively with people who are refugees. So we don't have a housing worker, we don't have 
employment worker, right? So our social worker does a lot of that. But when I work at Christie, they have a separate housing worker. They have somebody who um, has a relationship with legal services, right? So for our refugee claimants, they can connect to, or at least have someone help them connect to, uh, to somebody who can represent them in the legal process they have to undergo. So, you know, it's such a big part of people's health, right? Is making sure that they land on their feet in this new country they've arrived at. And sometimes it can be as simple as, you know, how do I use the public transport? Or how do I get clothing for my kids? I mean, this is, if someone took me and put me in another side, another side of the world where I didn't speak the language, I mean, these these challenges that would be inconceivable to me, you know, they, I'm sure I would never be able to navigate it. So, so the settlement workers we work with are absolutely critical and they're critical when people arrive and most of the shelters have an outreach program. We also work with the Canadian Centre for Victims of Torture. So they do some amazing work in terms of counselling, but also programs and support. They'll have homework clubs and, uh, you know, uh, uh, many of our patients have counsellors that check in with them regularly. You know, one of the issues that people really struggle with, particularly when they come on their, uh, on their own here, is social isolation. So just helping them build a network or having someone that they can speak to on a regular basis, especially in those first few months or years, uh, is really critical. You know, we work with CAMH. Uh, uh, there's a, a wonderful clinic there that serves newly arrived refugees called the New Beginnings Clinic. So, there, you know, we're lucky in Toronto. There's a there's a tremendous community of people that work with refugee populations that uh, we really rely on. And then there's a lot of people who we don't necessarily rub elbows with. You know, people who work in community centers, community gyms and libraries that uh, I think have become a lifeline for so many of our, our patients, less so in the pandemic, but uh, certainly uh, those folks are such an important part of maintaining people's health and making sure people integrate well here. When people get a sense of community, right? When they have people around them and, you know, all those things that make us human, that give us a sense of ourselves, that's often much greater impact on health than anything I do in my office, right? So many of the people we see are tremendously capable. They're well-educated. They've got a tremendous desire to rebuild their lives. It's really phenomenal to see. I, I think we need to be able to make sure that we do what we can to ensure that people remain productive and are able to thrive. You know, those programs that address the social and economic issues that are confronted by too many people in Canada. The journey of a refugee is often long and arduous, and there is certainly a lot of work that needs to be done to break down the barriers refugees face every day. Fortunately, there are many people working to improve the lives of refugees around the world, including our guests on this episode. To close our discussion, we asked our guests to reflect on their careers working with and supporting refugees in Canada. Some of what I'm most proud of is, is certainly the education work that I've done both at Women's College Hospital at the Crossroads Clinic, but certainly also at the Department of Family and Community Medicine at more central level. I think the development of an enhanced skills program with an emphasis on vulnerable populations, but the, the element of refugee health in specific has been really rewarding. And to have so many learners come through the Crossroads Clinic over the years, I hope has inspired many of them to go on and, and integrate refugee health work into their practices. Some of the other work that I've done that I'm exceptionally proud of was a contribution as a chapter author to the 2011 Canadian Collaboration on Immigrant and Refugee Health Guidelines, which was published in 2011 and was actually some of the very early sort of sentinel work around guidelines in Canada to care for this population. 
You know, when I look back, I think that's certainly been one of the highlights of my career. You know, the fight against the refugee health cuts, seeing how healthcare workers had stepped up across the country was really uh, inspiring and, you know, a testimony to the power of advocacy and really the contributions that healthcare workers can make in terms of advocating for the populations we serve. We're very excited in our clinic to be working with certainly Syrian migration and the upcoming Afghan migration. And, you know, we're looking at ways that we can support that. We're very excited that we're expanding to have a peer outreach work. And I think that that will be fantastic. One of my colleagues is leading on that. We've been wanting to do this for 10 years and you know, we finally got some funding together. And so this is, this is going to be our project for next year. You know, we put together conferences to educate and have a, a, a student learner in our clinic. So um, like I said, I, I think I really do have the best job in the city. I've had the opportunity to really uh, work on some uh, amazing projects. And uh, But most importantly, you know, one of the things that I have found difficult through the pandemic myself is uh, is doing virtual care and not because it doesn't work in some scenarios but I think you know I spoke about the connection and I realized in my work that that's such a gratifying part of it being able to put your you know your hand on someone's shoulder and look them directly in the eye without staring at your computer screen and so I'm really looking forward to the time when we can have people come back in in a big way where uh, you know we, we can then uh, I can sit back and uh, listen to uh, uh, the journey people have taken and um, you know the privilege and, and and remind myself as always about the privilege I have and being able to share in a very small way in those journey. As always, a very special thanks to our guests today, Dr. Meb Rashid, Dr. Prasida Janakiram, and Steve Mahar, and of course, thank you for listening. This episode was hosted by myself, Atifa, and Kayvon. Janine and Stefania helped develop content, Esther was our audio engineer, and Noor was our executive producer. Tune in again for our 100th episode on the 100th anniversary of the discovery of insulin. Until next time. Broad Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time...